Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Here at Seabus Super, over the next three years, we're investing $1 billion into Seabus property. Building high-quality, sustainable developments around Australia. And creating healthy, long-term investments for members like me to enjoy in retirement. Seabus, for all of us. To consider if Seabus is right for you, go to seabussuper.com.au for a PDS. I had to go about it This is The Final Word, cricket podcast with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins, uh, preparing for a show on which there will be many subjects, most of them related to cricket. That is probably no surprise. We're ahead of the fourth test match between India and England in Ahmedabad. I don't know how much casting forward to that we'll be doing because we will be doing daily shows uh, every day from that test match starting... Thursday night slash Friday morning, Australian time, Thursday night, Indian time. You work it out for where you are around the rest of the world. Other things will be running through on the show. Some surprise results in the WNCL, domestic 50 over women's cricket in Australia. Everyone's going to New Zealand. The Australian men's T20 team is there. The England women have been playing one day and are about to start playing T20s. The games are getting moved around. Uh, We've got Nerd Pledge later in the show. We've got the possible resumption of English cricket, both domestic and international. We've got Zimbabwe and Afghanistan getting a free-to-air TV deal in England, uh, and we have probably a range of other things that I've forgotten as well. Uh, you will find out as we go through the show. Welcome, Adam. And uh, we, are, we are preparing for all of these subjects, but probably nothing exciting you more than AFGVZIM. 
Yeah, I, I far rather discuss that as we will a bit later on than the pitch preparation in Ahmedabad, which I tell you what, the amount of articles and tweets and uh, podcasts that have been recorded since the end of the third test match about... Uh, mm. about Indian pitches. I think if we discuss it again, I'm going to have a mental breakdown. So we're going to leave that topic well alone. If you've come here for a stoush about pitches, you can go back in the feed probably three weeks ago when we had a conversation after the second Chennai test. Mm. We'll stand by all of that. Yes, things have changed a bit since then, I'm sure, but that will suffice in terms of our pitch debate. Are you trying to say you've got 99 problems, but this pitch ain't one? But a pitch ain't one. Yes, mm. I think I am. Well put. Very well good. Put. Uh, so Afghanistan are actually uh, walking out in the field. This is the beauty of having a, a test match on free-to-air television while we record. We've done this a few times where we've been watching test cricket and recording our weekly show. So Afghanistan were all out for 131, and now Zimbabwe, who bowled them out nicely, are getting their chance to reply after tea on the first day. That's at... Abu Dhabi, Jeff, a ground that we both know and love. The Sheikh Zayed. Sheikh Zayed. Oh, Sheikh Zayed. The Palace of Dreams, the spaceship um, cricket stadium that crash landed into the desert and and hosts all manner of unexpected contests. Yeah, the the, uh, the ground where we broke the law of the country in order to broadcast out of in two thousand and eighteen when we had to do a range of things that were were sailing very close to the wind. That's all captured in the ABC documentary that was made uh, about us buying the rights a couple of years ago. If you're interested to learn more, you're probably not. And yes, we'll have a quick conversation with Richard Sweeney as well uh, in a bit, who's the chief executive of the TV station uh, who bought the rights for all of the home games that Afghanistan and Zimbabwe will play over the next three years. So really exciting in terms of having lots of cricket on free television here in the UK, not just the test matches in India, but these other games uh, throughout the course of 2021, 2022 and 2023. And as far as servicing uh, that which is expected from the final word, have to note off the top that Sean Marsh made another ton today uh, in a 50-over game, 113 for WA, better than a runner ball against South Australia. He's coming back. It's his, He's uh, coming back. His 50th, the tons keep coming. Yeah, his 50th century in professional cricket. So it was always, Jeff, wow. uh, you know, uh, the conversation around Sean Marsh for many years was that he, he played for a long time but hadn't converted you know, regularly enough to three figures to justify his continued inclusion in the Australian team. The second half of his career has been the exact opposite, where he's been probably the most consistent century maker in Australian cricket behind Stephen Smith. And now, I mean, obviously, he's not going to get recalled to the Australian team, but he's doing it with far more regularity when he was getting a game regularly. He's got to go to India, though, surely. (laughs) Surely he's got to go to India. Get him on the plane. Get him sitting next to Dan Christian on the plane. Old blokes, winning stuff. Uh, Speaking of winning stuff... Very interesting to note, as far as the WNCL tends to be a pretty predictable competition in that there have been 24 uh, editions. New South Wales have made 24 finals and have won 20 of those 24 finals. <laughs> but right at the moment, they're fifth on the table. They're struggling. It's a seven-team table because the ACT gets a run in the Women's National Cricket League, which they don't get in men's domestic comps. And it's a little bit misleading because it's not like New South Wales have had a shocker. They got beaten twice by a very good Victorian team that's probably the best Victorian team that's that's ever taken the park mm. in terms of just quality position to position. And then they, they managed to tie Tasmania by with a comeback in the game where they, they ran out. I spelled into Vakarawa, I think it was, from the last ball of the match and tied it and then they beat South Australia. So they, they've got a win and they've played one fewer match than a few of those ahead of them on the table. Mm-hmm. But they're still fifth. Victoria top, 
Tasmania second, Queensland third, South Australia fourth. And it's just very interesting to see the breakers who share their name with a brand of flavoured milk, uh, which is a good reason to, to support them, I suppose. It's interesting to see them down the bottom of the table for us. Yeah, and we talked about uh, the inclusion of Kim Garth uh, during, I suppose, the Australian off-season of the Irish international who's taken up a full-time uh, mm. deal with the Vicks. I mean, it's a pretty strong team when you add Elise Perry and Kim Garth uh, alongside what they already had. So it used to be that New South Wales looked like the Australian team, and to an extent they still do, but Victoria do a fairly good impression given all of those Australian homegrown players they've got in their lineup too, the spin twins of Molyneux and Wareham, and Strano, the Australian captain Meg Lanning, her sister Anna Lanning, and then Annabelle Sutherland, Elise Villani. I mean, it's such a strong team. I'm, I'm not surprised that they're, uh, they're undefeated after five games, and yeah, it would be wonderful. It's, it's, you know what, it's actually very strong for Australian women's cricket that New South Wales are doing poorly, or, or uh, you know, that they're fifth on the ladder. They used to just blitz this competition, as you pointed out, uh, with that overview. If it ends up being the case that they don't make the final, that says a lot about the development of domestic women's cricket in the last five years, the deals that were handed out after the 2017 pay deal, which means that everybody playing in this comp has some degree of remuneration on a semi-pro basis, and a number of them have national contracts too. So, yeah, all signs are positive, even if it means that New South Wales have some work to do to make the finals. I suspect they will be back momentarily because they've got a double against the ACT coming up, which they should be absolute morals to, to win both of those. <laughs> but just for the moment, they're fifth. And the other thing is that New South Wales and Victoria might, well, they're both going to struggle with a lot of players going to New Zealand in a few weeks to, to play a series over there, whereas yep. Tasmania might not. And this one's interesting because if I can speak frankly, the Hobart Hurricanes were awful during the <laughs> WBBL. They were an absolutely atrocious cricket team. They won a couple of games off the back of Rachel Priest doing it on her own with the bat, but they've recruited quite well for the 50-over comp the last couple of seasons. Um, so this year they've got Heather Graham to come over from WA. They've got Sarah Coit, who's now played for New South Wales, South Australia, the ACT and Tasmania. Um, well done on ticking off more than 50% of the available teams. And they had picked up Sam Bates, who had you know, played play so well for the Sydney Thunder during the Big Bash as well last season. And so having also brought in Vakarewa and Naomi Stalenberg and Nicola Carey from New South Wales. So they've got a much stronger 50-over team in a lot of ways and they're second on the table and, and they probably won't lose many players to that national squad. Yeah, so Victoria played Queensland at the Junction Oval uh, on Friday. ACT, the first of their doubleheader at Phillip Oval, a ground where I once took a five-wicket bag, Jeff. Uh, Tasmania play Queensland at Bell Reeve. Then on Tuesday, WA plays South Australia at the Wacker. They play the ACT at the Wacker as well uh, next week. So, yeah, tons of games at the moment there. Much as it is with the men at the moment, a lot of domestic cricket. As I talk, uh, there's the first wicket for Zimbabwe. A fantastic delivery. Mm. knock over the opener. Off stump, out of the ground. You love seeing that. But no, that's going to be a focus of the final word over the next few weeks. Yep. And a little note as well for Beth Mooney, who in four games has uh, made scores including 58, 73 and 163, banged <laughs> on a partnership of 259 with Georgia Redmayne, where they, they both made hundreds. So uh, good to see her back in Queensland, although she's playing for Perth in the Big Bash, back for Queensland in the 50-over stuff. The T20s that have been happening across the ditch, it's been quite a long wait really um, because the Australian men played New Zealand's men in, in two matches and then it's been what about a six day six day break we're recording this yeah. the day before 
the third match of that series because they were waiting on on England women and New Zealand women to play an additional ODI, so six games for the women and, and five for the men. But we had another sort of Marcus Stoinis New Zealand near miracle. You know, we spoke to Marcus a, a few weeks ago in January about that one-day match at Eden Park in Auckland uh, five years ago or so, and he ne- very nearly did it again in a T20 where they were absolutely balked. They were, what, six for 115 or thereabouts, chasing 220. I think they needed 107 off the last seven overs and he got them within five runs of winning it. Yeah, a fantastic uh, highlights package of, of Stoinis' hitting. The, the observation on the commentary, and I know, Jeff, you were doing the, the live blog for The Guardian, so you would have heard this as well, and it's a good one. When, when Stoinis is hitting the ball well, it's not just when he's clearing the ropes, it's how hard he hits it in the infield. The boundary riders are always under so much pressure because he's so strong mm. along the ground. So I think that was partly a function of how he was able to turn the momentum when they looked like they were stuffed. And good on Daniel Sams, who... Yeah, it's principally been picked as a bowler, but has that explosive batting potential, I suppose you would call it. And uh, yeah, making what was it? Yeah, forty four or something. Forty, off, I think. Yeah, off not many deliveries, yeah. going at a strike rate of better than two hundred. Uh, I doubt we would have said twelve months ago, Jeff, that Daniel Sams would have been sort of a lock for the World Cup this year. But but there mm. he is. Um, I reckon he'll be just about a, a first choice selection in that all rounder spot, uh, given how well that he's done with the ball in a couple of big bashes now. And he's kind of looked apart on the international stage. He's a more experienced cricketer in his late twenties. He's comfortable uh, in his surrounds, if you like. He's got an interesting story as well. He played mm. first class cricket in New Zealand before getting an opportunity uh, in the Big Bash. So he, he's been around a bit. Yeah, and, and his hitting was absolutely crucial to that partnership. There was no way Stoinis could have got near it without the way that Daniel Sams was going with him blow for blow because it meant that it didn't matter who ended up on strike. And Sams was hitting them as, as clean as you've ever seen, yeah. you know, down the ground nearly taking out the cameraman and all of the rest of it. There just kept being this sort of medium shin height full tosses were the ones they couldn't put away. Both of them kept drilling those to the field, then they'd find a six somewhere else. Um, And so there were just a few deliveries they didn't make the most of. But the extraordinary nature of it, when you got to the last six overs, they needed 98 from 36 balls. And then they put together an over that went for 20, one that went for 25, and then one that went for 17. And it was all on Trent Bolt who came back with three overs to go. They brought him back early to finish out his allotment and he bowled an over that went for six runs. And that was enough in the end just to put it just that bit beyond them. But as far as final word interviewees who we also like watching in the field, Jimmy Neesham's had an absolute blinder the first couple of games as well. So Marty Guptill made 97 hitting them beautifully and then got out and the commentary was sort of saying, oh, well, they might this this might slow them down. They might have a, a lower revised total now that Guptill's got out. Jimmy Neesham walked out and hit his first three balls for six. <laughs> Just dunk, 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 easy as you like. And then a little bit later in the game played a, a reverse ramp shot over third man for six. It was just an extraordinarily bizarre shot but the amount of skill involved and then he hadn't bowled all day and he had to come on and bowl the 20th over of the match to defending 15 from the last over shades of the world cup final and he took both the wickets of the set batsman and won the game for new zealand so having a good time jimmy niche yep he's a force that's for sure and the other player taking their opportunity jeff is uh well i'm going to call him a final word fave even though we haven't interviewed him yet but josh ryan Philippi, whose cruel intentions have been on show uh, so far with the blade mm. certainly in that in that second game it mustn't be easy walking into a team when you know that, you know, if all the players were available, you wouldn't be there. And by that, I mean, like, he's he's not a first-choice selection yet. Sure, he was in the squad, the extended squad in England last year, but he's not sort of 
being considered at that level, but yet he's being asked to do that job and he seems to have stepped up as well. And that's a great sign, not only ahead of the World Cup, but as far as the, the options that Australia might have if Alex Carey does graduate to the test team and if there are more series where they need to. I know he's not been wicketkeeping here, but he, he is fundamentally a wicketkeeper. And I think important that he has had time to get the nerves out of the system. You know, first game didn't make a score. Second game, he did make a score, but he looked pretty ropey early. He was just shanking a few and wasn't quite middling them and all the rest of it, but started to build into that innings. And so you reckon if he gets three more shots, by the time he might be needed uh, a little later in the year, he might be much better for the run and, and able to come out and... And, and live up to that standard. And maybe they need that kind of younger, fearless player to, you know, to to come in with that confidence of youth and just go for it at the T20 World Cup, you know, which is it, it's, it so often seemed to be a tournament where the Australian men's team seemed a little bit nervous, a little bit edgy about how they're supposed to go about it, you know, but when you've got a lot of say, test players yeah. coming back who haven't been playing a lot of T20 cricket or that kind of thing. So it's been interesting. Yeah, they've, they've had top-order troubles. Ish Sodi picking up three wickets in an over in Dunedin, which was, um, you know, a little bit of an indictment on the way things are going with the top order. They promoted Agar up the order. That didn't work. That collapsed. So they've got some things to to work on the Australians. Yeah, and George Bailey's confirmed that Aaron Finch will lead uh, this team to the World Cup. I mean... It's not always a great sign, I don't think, when you're having your position guaranteed six months out from a tournament. It sort of suggests to me that it's counterintuitive, albeit, but maybe he, mm. he maybe he does need runs. He probably should mm. need runs. Peter Lawler wrote a, a good piece the other day about this that you can inadvertently heap tons of pressure on a player when um, when when you're essentially saying you're not going to be dropped no matter what. It can change the dynamic somewhat, but. He's got, what, three mm. games left in this series and then quite a long hiatus. He's not playing in the IPL, obviously overlooked in the auction last week. Australia mm-hmm. will play one-day internationals in the Caribbean in August and September. I suppose Finchler will also get an opportunity in the 100, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. And then there'll be the World Cup in India where he hasn't done well in the last couple of IPLs. Well, I know they didn't play the IPL in India last year. That, that's not reasonable um, to, to group that in. But generally speaking, there's a suggestion that Finch, you know, uh, <laughs> Yeah, there's this um, this double speak. He's, according to George Bailey, definitely captaining the team, but that doesn't mm. seem like it's a lock if he doesn't somehow start turning it around after. I think he's made 80 runs in his last 11 innings in, in white ball cricket or something like that. Not in ODIs because he played really well in the, the one-day series against India, but in T20s, T20s he's, right, yeah. he's at a, a shocker of a run. And so it, it is one of those ones where you can look at 2019 and that horrible run he had for six months before he managed to get it going just before the World Cup. You're cutting it a bit fine if you're relying on a player to do that yeah, two times running, but but equally you can. But equally, it's kind of good that mentally you know that he can come back from that. Like mm. like some cricketers go through a slump like that, and that's it. Like that's it, it. You know they're mm. not going to find a way to turn it around until they have a long layoff. Whereas with Finch, he, if I recall correctly, he he basically did it in the middle of that Indian white ball series. Started dismally, yeah. and got out of he got Game out of three. his rut, and by the end of the series was prolific again. And we know how well he played in the World Cup of twenty nineteen. Yeah, it's exactly that. Um, managed to get going somehow during that series, but that's pretty much what he'll have to do again. And you've got Warner to come back in, you know, probably the best T20 opener that Australia's ever produced. Yep. Um, you've got Wade making decent scores pretty regularly and you've got 
about six other options to open the batting. So there's not really a lot of places for Finch in the team if he's not opening the batting. So I don't think you can guarantee a spot if, if the runs don't come. The other series going alongside that is New Zealand and England in the women's stuff. Um, England won the first two games, which were pretty much non-events, bowled out New Zealand under 200 and chased it very easily both times. And then there was a turnaround in the third game where uh, New Zealand ended up chasing that time around, bowled out England for 220 And then this massive partnership with Amy Satterthwaite and Amelia Kerr put on 172. Seventh one-day century for Amy Satterthwaite. So a bit of something back for New Zealand just uh, as we were preparing for them to to be underwhelming once again ahead of their three T20s. Yeah, uh, they win the the dead rubber. Uh, England threw away a potentially big score in that that third game. Beaumont had no one to really go with her. Heather Knight was batting beautifully, but when she fell leg before wicket, I think to Amelia Kerr, I was scoring that game actually start quite late doing that with the tail end crew then uh yeah the, the the lower order i think they lost their last six wickets in the space of about nine overs and uh, they only set uh, new zealand 230 odd to win uh, tammy beaumont though uh she has now been elevated to number one in the world uh, in terms of the batting rankings that's the first time she's ever held that crown if you like she's had some brilliant runs in international cricket but yeah 71 72 not out and 88 not out has been enough to lift her up to the top jeff which is a uh, which is, yeah, really wonderful to see for a player who, when you consider Tammy Beaumont, and I've written about this extensively in the past for Wisden Almanac when she was one of the Wisden Five a couple of years ago, you look at the first sort of five or six years of her international career and it was, and she would say this herself, it was kind of laughable that she kept getting selected on the basis of her output. She hadn't made a half century, let alone made a match-winning contribution. But since the 2016, I suppose, uh, um, World T20 when she was given the chance at the top of the list and it all went from there and she's been one of the most formidable players in the world over the last five years and, and now the number one batter uh, according to the ICC as well. Which is pretty impressive given England haven't played a one-dayer in, what, 450 days or something? It was being counted as they had the, since they played a 50-over match. But I guess most of the other teams haven't been playing a lot over the last year or so either how many one dayers would Australia have played in the last 12 months maybe three those True. three against New Zealand the only ones that I can think of but anyway 231 in three matches at an average of 231 that's what happens when you're only <laughs> out once Tammy Beaumont is uh, our CBOS super performer of the week to go alongside three. the world number one ranking to sit on a shelf alongside that don't throw away your innings in retirement Tammy visit CBOS at cbossuper.com.au slash the final word you can go to our very own uh, landing page that they've so nicely made for us at TF Dubs cbussuper.com.au forward slash the final word I love that we've got that landing page there and as we've said before if you haven't sorted out your super what better time to do it jump on there get yourself a PDS get it in a PDF if you see fit to do so cbussuper.com.au they've been fantastic supporters of the final word over the last couple of years and great to have them with us again in 2021 now while we're on the subject of England women's cricketers uh, occasional perhaps in this case Alex Hartley Rory Burns, gloves on, gloves off, not too sure. Walk us through it. Yeah, well, um, it's kind of regrettable that we have to talk about this, really, because it was such a nothing, innocuous tweet from Alex Hartley that went up after the men, England men, uh, lost that test match in two days. During the third innings of that test, she put up a tweet just when England was sort of mid-collapse saying that, oh, well, at least, and I'm paraphrasing here, at least you'll, you know, everyone will be able to watch 
England's women when they play tonight on BT Sport because she's commentating for BT Sport. It was just one of those offhanded. She put in a few clap emojis. I mean, anybody who knows Alex Hartley or has watched her on social media, it was clearly just a gag, not a great joke, but not sort of a horrible sort of sledge of the England men. It was just stating the facts so that people could then now go on to pay more attention to the women than they otherwise would. No big deal, but it wasn't interpreted that way by Rory Burns and Ben Duckett and Samit Patel. Rory Burns has copped the majority of the heat for this, by the way, for his tweet, because he's with the England squad at the moment. But yeah, he responded with a quote tweet saying how disappointed uh, that he was, and he framed it up that uh, all the support that, quote, boys do for women's cricket, that he was disappointed that Alex would make a joke at their expense. And then the whole thing, as you would anticipate Jeff got completely out of control after quote tweeting Alex the abuse of her and almost just the way in which it was used as a microcosm for women's cricket like the bar that they need to meet these women who play for England and play for anyone for that matter sort of the suggestion that if not for the men the women wouldn't have any money to be paid with and the standard of women's cricket and the pylon was ridiculous all because of an innocuous joke from Alex and Ben Gardner wrote a brilliant piece on wisdom.com to to sum this up really well overnight but yeah kind of that idea that underpinned the Burns tweet that if not for the men where would the women be that's not literally what he said but that's the subtext isn't it that you know if not for the support that the the men give the women where would they be but what is this support precisely like you know I can't quite identify what it is that men's international cricketers are doing to advance the course of the women I mean I must have missed something along the way yeah look I'd be happy to be corrected on it but I my first impression was in you know a lot of years of covering the women's game I haven't noticed Rory Burns around a whole lot you know it's not not coming down to the ground to help put the covers on no and and, and look maybe maybe they shouldn't have to I mean the point here is that that, and that's fine like no one's saying that Rory Burns should be in every Surrey Stars game or whatever it is it's more just kind of the idea the the thinking that I mean it, it kind of almost lifted the mask didn't it for mine I mean how would you feel if you're Richard Gould who's the boss at Surrey who they've done so much to advance the cause of women's cricket over the last let's say 10 years but specifically in the last five if the club captain's out there tweeting like that and sort of almost dog whistling inadvertently perhaps but nevertheless to a whole bunch mm. of Surrey members that this is not on well, it, it, I mean it has a lot of layers is what I'm trying to say it, it doesn't it isn't just a case of a and I get that Burns would have been sitting around you know and Vish made this point in his piece for the Independent on the topic sitting around after they'd just been thumped for two, in two days and you know sort of licking their wounds and they're not probably at their best at that moment in time I'm sure that's the case but uh, still if that's what came into his head at that time. And Ben Duckett, likewise. And then Samit Patel, with his tweeting, of course, they haven't played for England for a while. But, yeah, it was pretty unsavoury. It was it was pretty ugly, the response that went underneath those tweets. And it was thoroughly avoidable and, and pretty disappointing. And I think it was well handled by Nat Siver when she was asked about it after the, the second uh, T20, where she basically just ignored it and said she hadn't seen it. And, but, and Alex had to sort of offer a conciliatory response to Burns saying, no offence, mate, sort of thing, when the way I was seeing it is that all this did was, whether he meant it or not, all it did was serve to undermine women's cricket and it was just, there was no need for it. I mean, interpret it in, in the spirit in which it's clearly intended as somebody who's now, as Ben points out in his piece, as much a broadcaster as she is an England player, the fact that she is working with you know, Test Match Special and BT and the ICC and all the other different organisations. Alex hasn't played for England in a couple of years. Her career is now more as a professional broadcaster than it is an England cricketer. She's no longer contracted by England. So, yeah, there's all that added context which which made this 
a fairly unpleasant exchange. Well, it's, it's pretty much two parts to it. One is if you lose a test match in two days, you deserve to get the piss taken out of you. Like, it, I don't think you get to complain about that. You know, maybe maybe for 24 hours or so after that loss at least, people are going to make jokes at your expense. Like, that's just that's just the reality of it. Um, so bad. But the main thing in, in the responses, which, you know, were largely coming from the kind of accounts that you would expect them to come from, sure. were blokes going, oh, imagine if this was the other way around. Imagine if this was the men saying this about the women. Oh, there'd be hell to pay. Or if the men were saying this about the women, it'd be treated completely differently. And you're like, yeah, it, it would because it's different because the way men and women are treated in society is different. Yes, the reaction would be different because it would carry a different set of uh, insinuations because it would have different baggage because it would be able to affect things in, in a different way and when you, you're dealing with uh, a relationship where there's a completely skewed power dynamic, the things that people do in the more powerful part of that relationship mean something different to the things that people do in the less powerful part of that dynamic. They are different. Exactly. They would be treated differently because they are. Yeah, and hopefully out of all of this, the, the main piece into the future is that there is sort of an education about what this means on social media, what it turns into. Alex put up a, a secondary tweet a day or so later acknowledging that, you know, how much abuse she'd copped. And you can still see it in the comments. Even Ben's piece yesterday, I dropped Ben a message to say, you know, congratulations for writing it. Because when you put your head above the parapet like that, he's going to spend a day copping pelters as well. I mean, I'm not trying to say, you know, that what Ben has done is anything particularly special. All he's doing is, is his, his job as a journalist. But nevertheless, whenever you wade into this territory, it's full on. And Alex wasn't trying to wade into this space. She was just making a throwaway gag and directing people to watch the England women on television that night. Like, it's not as though she was uh, trying to enter the culture war, for want of a better descriptor. So anyway, it's all a bit shit, but I'm glad I'm glad we're through the other side of it. And, um, and I'm glad that ha- it has, in some respects, drawn attention to uh, the way in which um, you know, people behave on social media, which is really important. So that England women's team in New Zealand at the moment, uh, they'll be replaced by the Australian team pretty soon that squad's been announced they'll be heading off later this month the interesting part of this squad is it's it's largely as you'd expect you know the the main names that have been the core of that team for a long time and you know Lanning, Perry, Haynes, Jess Jonathan etc but they've got a bunch of fast bowling and seam bowling in this squad which hasn't really happened for a while this the Australian team for the last couple of years or so there's been a lot of Megan Shute really playing as the lone specialist seam bowler yeah. with all-rounders in support in, you know, Perry, Nicola Carey, maybe Delissa Kimmitz, those sort of players, Annabelle Sutherland, but without, you know, a specialist bowling pace attack. It's been a specialist bowling spin attack for the most part. The way this squad's framed up now, they've got Taylor Vellamick back from the injury that's kept her out since the T20 World Cup last year. They've got Darcy Brown from South Australia, who's turned 17 now, but, you know, very young, very quick. One of the most impressive finds in the last Big Bash. Um, Belinda Vakarawa is in that squad as well. Hannah Darlington's in for the first time as well. I think she's just been made the captain of New South Wales at, how old is she, 21? No, she's 19. She's the youngest captain of a New South Wales side of all time, but men's or women's at, at a senior level. So, yeah, mm. pretty remarkable that she's been picked for Australia and uh, and given the captaincy of New South Wales in the space of a week. 
Yeah, so so those players, along with Perry, Carey, Sutherland, Talia McGrath, as the all-round seamers, you know, you end mm. up with about nine different variations of, of seam and pace bowler in the squad. So it's it's a very different look. Yeah, and, and I'm I'm really glad to see uh, Vakarewa um, back in that squad too. She was part of the 2017 World Cup group that went to England, but she didn't play, I don't think. But you go back two years ahead of that, and. You know, she was. I think she played once. She might have played that, once, yeah. But she was a 16-year-old when she mm. burst onto the scene in the first WBBL, and you're kind of thinking that she could be a long-term prospect. But she was um, scuppered by injury for a while there. Now moved states and now back into the Australian setup. So that's great news for the left arm, quick. And yeah, I think that Darcy Brown. It's almost a signposting that there is some generation change, or they're at least preparing for generation change. Because sure, Australia are the best team in the world at the moment. They're only getting better at these global tournaments. Tournaments, but players will retire. You know, Elise Perry at the at the 2019 mm. Women's Ashes, she didn't sort of say effusively that she'd be back to England in four years' time. It might be that, I mean, you know, she's been playing since she was 16 years old for Australia, and not to mention the fact that she played a second sport. So there's a lot of wear and tear there, and that'd be the case for a number of these players who've been in and around the Australian setup since they were teenagers. So it only makes sense that they are now getting the next generation ready to, to take the baton perhaps earlier than, than they may have expected if it is the case that players start to suffer injuries and so on. It's, it's good player management. And I like that there is the preparedness you know, in the women's side of Australia's team management to get teenage players into the squad. You know, if Darcy Brown's good enough, then then get her in and they don't sort of worry about the age so much as that's very unusual in men's cricket now that, you know, you, you might maybe just on the very outside sort of have a 19-year-old a could be sort of mentioned in conversation for a, a national team call-up, but it's it's pretty unusual for it to happen, and, and being into their 20s is much more likely. Yeah, and also quicks as well. So Valamick Brown, and you look over in New Zealand at the moment, the Issy Wong uh, is in New Zealand, the England speedster. Now, she's not going to play over there. She's there on a, I think they've called it a development trip or something like that, but 18 mm-hmm. and the quickest bowler in England at the moment. So I think it's pretty exciting that when we talk about women's cricket, what it'll look like in five years' time or 10 years' time as we go from the semi-professional era to a full professional era. Um, I suppose we're already there in terms of the national teams, but that level below, seeing bowlers who can invest in bowling just raw pace, that's the next step, and that's exciting. Uh, so, yeah, great to see Darcy Brown given that opportunity and, and Valamick back from injury. Very good. Before the break, let's play a little game. Do you want to play a game? I do. Okay, let's play a little game called Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge. It's the game we play with people on our patron page. They try to fool us. They try to test our cricketing brains by sending us a number. And at the same time, they support the show because uh, they, they make that number out of money. They make it out of dollars and cents, for instance. But the number is not a normal money number. It's a cricket number. And we have to guess what the cricket number is. The first of these is $2.11. So that could be 2.11. It could be 21.1. It could be 211. Uh, Maybe it's an anagram. I don't know. I hope it's not because that will be too confusing. It comes from Raul V. Very mysterious, Raul V. And uh, 211, and it's all yours, Adam. What did you make of 211? Okay, so 211, there's some good stuff here, Jeff. And given there's no clue, we can go through a little bit of it. Uh, 211 was Jack Hobbs' highest score in Test cricket, which feels a 
tiny bit underwhelming mm. given he made 199 first class hundreds. Do you think he's the kind of guy at test level, given his extraordinary record, that he would have had like a big 250 or something like that? But no, it was 211 uh, for him against South Africa uh, in 1924 at Lords. His highest score at Lords was 316, of course, which we've talked about on Storytime. I think. In the last four weeks, mm-hmm. we've talked about <laughs> triple hundreds at Lords on the weekend show, including his when he broke the record in, in 1926. It remains the uh, the championship record at, at that ground. Um, 211, Jeff, was the first double century in Test cricket. Billy Murdoch made mm-hmm. 211 against England at the Oval uh, in 1884. So that was the world record, of course, by extension, because he was the first person to get to that milestone. He was also the first Australian man to um, make a triple century as well uh, for New South Wales against Victoria at the SCG in 1882, when it was still called the Association Ground, the SCG. I didn't know that, that it had a, a name before. Was it? It was called the SCG, but we know it now. But in terms of 211s in Test cricket or international cricket, there have been eight instances across the 144 years or whatever it is. Um, so the aforementioned Murdoch and Hobbs, and then six others, four of whom are, are all-time greats. Meandad, Sangakara, Coley, and Smith. So Coley... It was the second of his four double centuries in the space of 2016. That was against New Zealand at Indoor. Steve Smith made his 211 at Manchester in 2019 when he returned from the concussion and after the defeat at Leeds, back in the team, uh, made that ashes-defining, I suppose you would say, uh, double century. But I wanted to just quickly um, dive into the Java Mandad 211, uh, Jeff, which was uh, in Karachi against Australia in 1988 to quote from the Steve Waugh book that he wrote when he finished playing Meandad basically did as he wished even to the extent of wearing a white half mesh half polyester cheap and nasty souvenir cap with the I love New York logo instead of his national cap So, so in, in, of course, they go on and win. They win by an innings. And um, it was um, Ian Healy's uh, debut when he made 21 and top scored with 21 in the second innings. But that I Love New York hat, I, I've seen it referenced on social media in the past, Jeff, that he made a double hundred uh, wearing, you know, I love, the, I love the description here, half mesh, half polyester, cheap and nasty souvenir cap uh, with the I Love New York logo from Steve Waugh. But there's no sort of, there's no evidence of it as far as, um, no photographic evidence that, that, that's in the archives. So I thought it was just worth putting okay. it out to the final word community. If you have any tangential link to Pakistani cricket and someone who may have been mm-hmm. there at Karachi in 1988 and might be able to get a photo of me and Dad batting in that cap, that would make me very happy. Oh, very happy indeed. I'd frame it. I'd put it on the wall <laughs> if I had Javed in an I Love New York hat making runs against Australia. All right. Thank you for sharing that with me. Rahul, if that is not your number, you can drop us a DM on Patreon and uh you can tell us what your number is or you can give us another hint and we'll come back to it on Storytime, which is the show on the weekend where we do a lot more of this stuff than we do on this show. The next number from Daniel Dabney, $2.67, and it came with a hint, uh, which sometimes makes things more confusing than if it doesn't come with a hint. The hint in this case did exactly that. It says, the clue is in the pledge itself. The clue is in... Two dollars sixty-seven. Uh, did you get anywhere with this? Only that I, I looked at whether sixty-seven had been made twice in the same Test match, and I can confirm that it hasn't. There have been a mm-hmm. number of times where the number sixty-seven has been scored by the same batsman consecutively. So by that I mean, let's say, I think Bill Woodfull made a 67 in one test match and made another 67 a few test matches later, and no one had made 67 in between. There's four or five instances of that, but certainly mm-hmm. not in the same test. A few times in the same series, this is as close as I got to the mark. 
Okay. Yeah, I, I was sort of thinking along a similar line. Was it two sixty sevens? But yeah, because Bill Woodfull, I think at Brisbane and Sydney, those two losses in the body line series. Also, Matthew Hayden made a sixty seven against India in the famous Calcutta Test of two thousand and one, and another one in the not quite as famous, but also quite famous Sydney test against India in 2004. Right. So both of which matches Australia lost. So I thought maybe 2.67 means two pointless 67s <laughs> because <laughs> neither of them helped Australia get a win. Um, and you could say the same for Bill Woodfull. The, a couple of little yeah, things I picked yep. up with players who made 67 twice. We've talked about Tom Vivas a bit being a, a f- not hugely interesting off-spinner who William McInnes mentioned on the show because he had a, a cousin or a brother, I think it was a cousin maybe, called Vic Vivas, who was a very boring Sheffield <laughs> Shield announcer on television for the ABC in the 80s. And that's it. So Tom Vivas comes to mind for that reason. He made uh, he made 67 twice in 1964, once in London and once in Mumbai, well-travelled. And there are a couple of other players like Dinesh Chandamal and Azhar Ali who've made 67 a couple of times within a couple of months in their own careers. Yeah, yeah. Or 67s of interest. Eric Rowan for South Africa made one just before the war in 1939 and then one after it had finished in 1949. Muhammad Ashraful made a couple in Dhaka, but yeah, there wasn't anything hugely interesting as far as I could find there. The only other thing I thought to look at then was what about February 1967? What if it were 267, ah. you know, the month of Feb in, in 1967? At which time Bob Simpson was leading an Australian side to South Africa, including Bill Laurie, a young Ian Chappell, Stacky Stackpole, and Tom Vivas <laughs> was in the 267 side as well, a man who made 267s. That's a series we've talked about in which the South African wicketkeeper Dennis Lindsay made the record for runs in a series by a wicketkeeper. And they saved a match at Johannesburg when Ian Chappell was 13 not out in two hours, batting last or tr- trying not to lose by an innings when it rained at tea on the fifth day. Okay. I don't think it's going to be any of those things. So um, you might have to give us a bit of a clue daniel dabney hop in the dms give us a nudge we'll come back to it on story time and last uh, today on nerd pledge jeff is 760 from stuart beaumont now the clue is in honor of the victorian my mum and possibly my dad used to lust after when i was a kid great stats but he hasn't heard us talk much about him and maybe there's a story behind the story jeff 760 760 it's got to be one man doesn't it it's got to be uh, inaugural Hall of Fame member Keith Richards, born in Sunshine, Keith, Sons of the Mighty West. Not Keith Richards, uh, Keith Miller. Oh, <laughs> leave that in. <laughs> Keith Richards. Imagine if it were Keith Richards. It was probably seven, 7.6 grams a day, maybe, <laughs> Keith Richards, but seven, 7 for 60, Keith Miller. Look, he was a, a small kid and then grew up into a big, big fellow, uh, played a bunch of football for St Kilda at the same time as playing Sheffield Shield cricket for Victoria all before he was the age of 20. And guess who his maths teacher at Melbourne High was, Adam? I have no idea. It was Bill Woodfull. Oh, was it? I had no idea. That seems like the sort of thing I would know. Anyway, I didn't. I do now. It's the sort of thing you would love to know. So so Bill Woodfull also did some cricket coaching at Melbourne High and uh, saw a bit of potential in, in Keith Miller and the number, the seven 
$1.60 is 7 for 60 on his Ashes debut when Don Bradman wanted him in the team as a pace enforcer and thought that his batting was good enough for the top order. So they put Miller at five and picked about six different bowlers and he made 79 in the first innings and then took seven for 60 after it pissed down with rain at Brisbane and ruined the pitch. Got a couple more in the second dig, nine wickets on debut, not too bad. Yeah, always seen as like the great all-rounder, isn't he, when you think about Victorian sportsmen, especially given... Batting, bowling, played 50 games for St Kilda, played footy for Victoria. I mean, we haven't even talked about his military service, which always comes up in conversations around Keith Miller um, and his nocturnal activities. We talked about Princess Margaret and Keith Miller, allegedly, a a few weeks ago on Storytime. But, yeah, I I think, um, well, he was picked in the uh, team of the century in 2000. I think if you're picking any best of Australian team and capturing any um, time bracket from the start of uh, test, if you're picking the all-time test Australian team from 1877 to now, he'd be in there um, as the all-rounder. There's almost no doubt about that. So, yeah, a a legacy which is considerable and passed away in 2004. Richie Benno did the eulogy, didn't he? So one of the uh, Bradman Invincibles in 1948 as well. And had a lot of good stories about him as well. He got in trouble a lot when he was in the military. He was in the Air Force as a fighter pilot and nearly got kicked out a couple of times. Things like nearly missing the boat to get to South Africa for a test tour over there because he'd had a massive night the <laughs> night before. And, um, <laughs> and the next one was seven weeks later. Um, but my favourite note in, in Keith Miller history is, is, is this. On the way to the 53 Ashes, quote, During a stopover at Naples, Miller was locked inside after entering a private opera rehearsal without <laughs> authorization, but managed to escape and rejoin the boat as it was about to leave. Total ideas, man, right there. 4,000 test runs, 170 <laughs> test wickets. Vice-captain of that team of the century and 7 for 60 against England on his Ashes debut in 1946. Keith Miller, we're certain that's right for 7.60. Thank you, Stuart Beaumont. And that's the end of their pledge. Yeah, if you want to play Nerd Pledge, very easy. Go to patron.com slash the final word. Patron is spelt P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You're welcome to write to them and ask why. Uh, if you do that, you can. Uh, you don't need to write to them. You do need to write to us. You set up your number and we will get it and add it to the list and it will come up in a show. Let's have a little break. After that, we're going to talk about the coming season for England, the 100, the Afghanistan-Zimbabwe stuff and other things that I don't remember. Uh, but they, they, they will be there right after this. I'm Barney Douglas, director of The Edge. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam and Jeff. What a show. If you love satellite technology and you love your phone, who are you going to call? Zolio! Zolio, the master of the cosmos, the magic box that uses the stars to let you speak to the stars. If you happen to know any stars and you want to text them or email them, these are things you can do from anywhere on the planet to anywhere on the planet. That's what Zolio is about. I was thinking during the week, Jeff, when flying uh, back from Melbourne to London, whether I, if I had the Zolio in my pocket, which is... It, Mm-hmm. It fits into your shirt pocket. I remember when I used to work in a job mm-hmm. which required me to wear um, a shirt and a tie that there was always mm-hmm. whether one should have a breast pocket or not. And I always loved the breast pocket for you could put a pen in there, right? Like it's a convenient thing to have, but yep. it was looked down upon by, by others. Um, but the, I would retain the breast pocket now, even more so knowing that if I had that mm. shirt on, 
and I was on a plane, I could pop the Zolio in there. It's that little. It's so convenient. Yeah, I mean, I, f- I find a breast pocket good for keeping my breasts in. But, yeah, you can, you, you've always got to watch out for the pen that leaks in the pocket and then you need to get a pocket protector uh, to protect your pockets. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's a complicated process. But the Zolio is not uh, because it's a magic box that makes your ordinary phone into a satellite phone without you having to get a satellite phone. Uh, it's, it's for textual communications, not voice ones. But it means that wherever you are on the planet, you turn on the little Zolio box, you tell it to connect to your phone, and then as soon as you do that, you join the Iridium satellite network of satellites that fly around the Earth with little green flashes of light sending back Earthwards, uh, which is why they got named Iridium. And you can message from where you are to where someone else is. And probably, I don't know this for sure because I'm not a scientist, but I reckon they would work on the planes because I think then you're just closer to the satellite. You're just reducing the distance that the beam has to travel to hit the satellite and come back. So I think you'd be able to text on a plane. Don't quote me on that. Ask them when you contact, when you go to Zolio.com, ask them about it. Just say, a guy on a podcast said this. It's not, it doesn't check out. But... I think that might be a possibility. Yeah, I mean, if, if it does work in the plane, and let's assume it does for the purpose of our conversation today, it would save you a mm. lot of money compared to buying the airline Wi-Fi when you're at 40,000 feet. Mm-hmm. Not to say that I do that. I cherish my chance. I, 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 every time I'm in that cylinder for 24 hours and I can't be contacted by anybody, it actually works in my favour. But you might have work to do. You might have people to contact. You might want to yep. keep corresponding with the person who you're who you're working with or, or seeing or whatever it is and the Zolio can probably let you do that we don't know for sure we're just two idiots on a podcast but mm. it, it can it can certainly work if you're up a mountain or in a desert or yep. or in the jungle somewhere in the sea, in the sea that's it uh, on a boat on a little dinghy mm-hmm. out into the sea it'll work probably there. not under the sea no I reckon if you were like maybe like a meter under the sea. Although I'm not. I think it's it's water resistant. It's certainly very dust resistant and stuff. It comes in a very tough little case with all these rubbery plugs that go into the apertures to make sure that nothing gets in there and can't screw it up for you. And it's also got like a red emergency button where if you're in trouble, you hit that and someone will come and rescue you, which is pretty sweet as well. So you know, it's it's cheap. Yeah. It's convenient. It's easy. And you can contact people around the world. Yeah, I've said before that I, I know a guy who once got lost up a mountain and had he had a Zolio with him, it would have been yep. a, a far less stressful process than it was when uh, mm-hmm. he ended up, yes, up the side of a mountain for a couple of days in the middle of winter and it wasn't very pleasant for him, needless to say. Um, he was saved in the end and we're grateful mm. for it. But had the Zolio existed in 2009, which it probably didn't, it would have been fine. So if you're a, an adventurous type, if you like climbing stuff, um, that's another reason to get the Zolio. Zolio.com. Get yourself one today. Z-O-L-E-O. That's it. Five letters. You can do it. I believe in you. Hi, I'm Ebony rainford Brent, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Hello. Discussing matters pertaining to cricket, the game of people who like cricket. Um, Hopefully, some of those people in the United Kingdom will be able to play or attend cricket in the season to come because we've ticked over into March. So that means, given the insane optimism of the British, um, they'll be going outside in April to try to play cricket. Good luck with that. And the season's going to start and there will be a demand for people to be able to play it 
and go to watch it. So where is that at, Adam, given the last uh, English cricket season, it was all about the cricket ball is a vector of disease. (laughs) Where are we now? Yeah, I suppose with um, a year of experience playing in the middle of a pandemic, they're relatively upbeat about getting the entire season away. And look, they should be on the basis of the vaccine rollout uh, and what the government have been saying around um, different dates and different benchmarks. So according to an excellent piece in The Cricketer um, on the website there last week by Sam Morsehead, the two big days on the calendar uh, the 17th of May and the 21st of June. So from the 17th of May, you can have spectators back uh, up to 4,000 people or 25% of your capacity. So that'll be about a month uh, into the county championship season. And then June 21 is when the breaks are taken off a fraction more again in terms of capacity of crowds and, and all the rest of it. So, yeah, I mean, you look at the the schedule as it's been released. We know that the county championship will be played, you know, in April and May as it always is, and the T20 Blast will take over in June and July. Um, then there'll be the hundred through July uh, into August, uh, which will be played alongside the Royal London Cup, which is the fifty over competition. Uh, and then we go back to the county championship for the second stanza uh, in I think it's late August, early September. So. There is going to be a lot of cricket and the majority of it sort of is beyond uh, the dates that have been set out by the government. So say take June 21, for example, the vast bulk of the cricket where they want to get people through the gates will happen after then. So in this piece that Sam wrote, the the, the county chief executives he spoke to, 90% of the revenue they get through the gates is in the the blast. And so they're, they're, you know, there was one scenario which he talked about where had the dates been pushed back even further, they might have played the entire county championship in the months where it would have been not quite behind closed doors, but where the capacity would have been lower at 4,000 or 25%. So, um, yeah, they were willing to be nimble. And look, as you point out, Jeff, it's all a bit of suck it and see, isn't it? I mean, the reports we had from the from the government here on Friday weren't as upbeat as what we had the previous Sunday about case numbers. So I suppose there'll be a watching brief on that. And to assume anything about this pandemic is, is a bit of a fool's errand. But at least they've been able to put in place a schedule which will cover off all their competitions in addition to the international calendar, which they announced uh, late last year. And, and that really doesn't get going till June. So again, it's kind of like... They're gaming it that by the time we get to the the, the meaty part of the season, uh, we're, we're going to be able to potentially see you know a lot of cricket in the flesh, which wasn't possible in twenty twenty. It's it's interesting primarily for that conflict between the T twenty blast, which is still operating, which still has all eighteen county sides involved. Yep. They've all got their teams as as they normally had. So you know, here's Surrey and here's Warwickshire and whatever else. Gloucestershire, I'm going to give them a run. I've left them out a few times. Although they might be different because they're in Wales, so they'll be subject to different laws. Yes, um, that's true. Tricky for them to actually stage cricket in in Cardiff. But there's that, which the counties rely on for revenue, as you said. And then there's the 100, which has eight teams, which are sort of loosely tied to various counties in various ways, but they're separate. That's basically an ECB competition. The counties have an interest in that making money because they get um, some of the money that, that comes through the gates there. But you've basically got two pretty similar competing competitions really being run by the same people. It's a curious position to be in. Yeah, it's a philosophical debate that's been had for the last two years since the 100 was originally announced, which would have been, I suppose, around April 2018, the first idea of a 100-ball competition. And of course, it would have started last year, if not for the pandemic. So um, that that conflict, if you like, has been thrashed out. I mean, those who are advocates for both competitions running side by side say that, well, really what you said there, that um, uh, that 
the blast will be one thing and the 100 will be a very different thing and the two will not collide in that the players who are in one comp won't be in the other. Where there is going to be a problem uh, or, or, or a challenge uh, is that the 50-over competition won't have players from the 100 in it. And England are world champions in the 50-over format of the game, the English men uh, and in the English women are for that matter as well. But obviously the clashes with the men. So that competition will inevitably be reduced, played on, you know, secondary venues in many cases and, and won't have at their disposal that, that that deeper talent pool. And maybe you could argue they don't have that deeper talent pool anyway. I mean, how often um, have the Royal London Cup had the best possible players in the country available? Not that often due to other competing commitments. So that that's a, a generous interpretation of what's going to happen uh, this year. We did have the 100 draft this week, Jeff, which is the second time they've, they've done that. There was a process of player retention because the original draft that took place in October 2019 um, the clubs had the chance to retain players and then they had to draft for the rest of them I think they get one more pick in June this year but we saw 35 places uh, taken up in this drafting process uh, last week Manchester Originals were the busiest of the team signing 10 of those 35 players so that would suggest that for whatever reason they were they were unable to retain as many players as other clubs were so Nicholas Purin, who's been on an extraordinary rise over the last couple of years since the 2019 World Cup, Jeff, he's going to Manchester. Uh, David Warner is going to be playing for the Southern Brave alongside Jofra Archer, which was a pretty big talking point given their rivalry over the last couple of years. So mm. in terms of Australian involvement, uh, Warner and Stoinis are at the Southern Brave with Archer and Andre Russell. Uh, the Birmingham Phoenix have Adam Zampa, uh, who's the one Australian there? Chris Wokes and Kane Williamson are the other two higher profile players in that setup. London Spirit have retained Glenn Maxwell. Uh, Owen Morgan's the captain there. Mark Wood, the other major England player. The Welsh Fire has jumping Jai Richardson. They picked him up in the draft. Johnny Bairstow's their main top dog. Tom Banton, the young gun, playing at Cardiff too. The Northern Superchargers, Aaron Finch was retained. Chris Lynn, likewise. Ben Stokes, Adil Rashid, the two England players. And Trent Rockett, so the Nottingham side. Darcy Short and Nathan Coulton will be the Australians there alongside Joe Root and Rashid Khan. It must be said that it's not entirely clear... Uh, looking at the schedule, how much the England players will be available because the second half of the 100 season clashes with the test matches against India. So if they're bubbled, and it's probably worth assuming that they will be, it's hard to see how they'll get to play any games in the 100 this year. So, you know, your your international stars like Joe Root and Ben Stokes and others, but they're all notionally aligned to a club and hopefully the conditions are such that they won't need to be bubbled and they'll be able to play some games before they move off to their Red Bull commitments. But that was all taking place alongside the, the women's draft. So that's a bit different as far as they've, they've not been allocating all the positions yet. They're signing the players on a more ad hoc basis. But um, in the last week, I mean, Tammy Beaumont was confirmed as going to the London Spirit, for example. We've seen Nicola Carey from an Australian perspective and Elisa Healy both going to the Northern Superchargers. Uh, Rachel Haynes is going to the Oval Invincibles, uh, Sophie Molyneux, Annabelle Sutherland to the Trent Rockets and for the Welsh Fire, Jess Jonathan, Meg Lanning and Beth Mooney are all getting an opportunity in that competition. So not a world apart from the, K- the Kia Super League, which ran for four seasons, Jeff, where there are a number of these sort of first choice Australian picks. Uh, they want them in this England domestic comp and they're willing to to invest in them rather than having a you know a squad chock full of England players. Why wouldn't you want Meg Lanning? Why wouldn't you want Beth Mooney? It makes perfect sense. Mm, so it's interesting 
how it links up to who's running the teams as well. You see this in the IPL too. A lot of the player picks depend on who has Australian coaches and so on. You know, yes, Darren Lehman, I assume, is is coaching the Aaron Finch, Chris Lynn team. Yes, yes. Um, for for example, one thing to be excited about for you is. Glenn Maxwell playing for London alongside Ravi Bapara. Uh, yes. Real, real dream pairing for you. Well, it's um, it's going to be, be yeah, I mean, I, I have no team. Warney's, um, Warney's the coach here, isn't he, at London Spirit? Yeah. So that'll be, that'll be interesting. Look, it's a, it's a good opportunity for Maxie to be over here. I'm not sure how that might intersect with what he might be able to do with, with a county contract. I mean, of course, he'll be scheduled to go to the West Indies as soon as they're finished in this competition because he'll have white ball commitments over there for Australia, presumably. But yeah, just the fact that he'll be over here in the middle of the summer. I mean, I hope that that gives him a chance to sign a dotted line somewhere and play red ball cricket because per the piece from Andrew Wu in the Sydney Morning Herald a couple of days ago, due to the way in which the New Zealand tour at the moment have had to change venues and get all the players out of Auckland, it's possible they'll have to do a 14-day hotel quarantine stretch when they return to Australia and, and that would mean that um, Glenn will not get the chance to play Shield cricket this year and it'll extend his run of no red ball to about two years. So if he's in England and, and a county wants to sign him, I'm, I'm sure he'd be enthusiastic about an opportunity like that. Yeah, well, it'll be curious to see who actually fronts up for these games, um, a bit like the first few years of the Big Bash where they were all about announcing you know, which current Australian players were signed to which team that they were definitely not going to play for yes. at all. Remember Michael Clark signing for the Melbourne Stars? That was <laughs> that was a big coup. You know, Steve Smith actually did play for the Sixers for a while before he before he got popular. Um, but yeah, Warner, Warner played yeah. maybe two games for the Sydney Thunder, was it? I think I it's the Thunder. I think Warner's been on the Thunder list for like a long time, but having yeah. not played, maybe it's the Sixers. I mean, I, I don't profess to know a lot about the Big Bash, but I know I that Warner... was Thunder... It, they made he made a ton. He played. There was a season where he played like two games, right. I think, and he made a, a hundred or fifty odd balls in a run chase, and you know it was quite the innings. But that was a long time back. That might have been you know twenty, might have been first or second season, twenty eleven or twelve, right. or whatever it was. It all it all sort of blurs into a fluorescent mass after a while. I've, I've got to say. Uh, but speaking of T twenty tournaments that we are too tired to pay attention to the Pakistan Super League <laughs> which is a good one there's a lot of good players in that league I sort of keep up with a little bit of the the, the posting about it and the analysis from the Crickviz guys and so on but like the idea of adding another league to my personal roster of things that I'm having to watch is just that bit too much at the moment um, but I'm glad everyone's having fun over there that's the main thing yeah everyone's having a nice time in Pakistan it's just great that the comp's being played over there really we talked about this uh, when South Africa were over there for Test cricket recently. Just the colours of cricket in Pakistan. The, there's something about cricket over there which is very watchable. So um, there was a, a, a slight COVID scare yesterday. The game between Islamabad and Quetta had to be postponed because Farwad Ahmed um, contracted uh, COVID 19 or tested positive mm. for COVID 19. So there's still that uh, lurking in the background as it is for all cricket uh, at the moment, no matter what, where or when. But yeah, I think what we'll do, Jeff, because we don't have the capacity to pay as much attention to that as we otherwise might, we'll get an expert on to talk PSL uh, in the space of the next few weeks because it is a, a huge comp uh, alongside the IPL and, and I suppose at different times the Big Bash, the, the, the PSL sits right there with it, doesn't it, in terms of that sort of top-tier T20 fair, um, you know, the players... Um, the, the biggest players on the circuit always end up in, in the PSL. There's not many um, big dogs who, who aren't playing, unless they're from India, of course, which is a whole different political um, kettle of fish. But you know what I'm trying to say. Mm. Yeah, I, I do. Um, there's, it, it's probably more of a, more of a star-pulling power than, than the Big Bash. Um, I mean, even the, the Bangladesh League 
might argue that it has more star pulling power than the Big Bash, which is interesting. <laughs> um, but this is the way things are in, in a world where things are not always as you might expect. As they are not on the free-to-air TV channel that you're watching, as we speak, Afghanistan playing Zimbabwe in a test match and it's on TV in the UK and a lot more is going to be because this uh, this mob free sports have brought up all of the Zimbabwe cricket and all of the Afghanistan cricket over the next three years, T20s one day as test matches um, and there's quite a bit coming up. Yeah, Zimbabwe 38 for two uh, in reply to Afghanistan's 131, I, I think it is. That'll be completely out of date by the time this podcast is published but worth noting. Yeah, this is great. Um, this is great. Uh, the idea that there was no cricket on terrestrial television in the UK for 15 years and on Thursday there'll be test matches on two channels at the same time. I mean, that, that feels like a pretty big development. And that's not to wade into the, the debate around free-to-air versus Sky Cricket. I mean, that's a, that's a completely different discussion. And the fact that Sky Cricket is without a doubt the best cricket broadcaster in the world and has poured in untold resources into the game in England and do just a spectacular job, putting that all to one side, just the idea that there is some cricket on free television can only be a good thing alongside that um, subscription service. So, But yeah, free sports, they've had the chance to do a little bit of cricket before. I think they did the T10 a few weeks ago. They did some stuff in Sri Lanka a couple of years ago. Uh, they've looked after a Cricket South Africa T20 mini tournament last month. So um, they were debating where they go next and they saw this opportunity and they, they jumped right in, which is to their immense credit. So they're just taking the host feed. It's not as though they're doing the whole production themselves, but the very idea that they've got this platform. They've got a, a subscription television station, uh, which does a lot of uh, European football and rugby and so on, but no cricket on there on Premier Sports. But Free Sports is where they've got this second channel. And by nature of the, the, the name, it is a free station. Uh, so everyone... Are you, well, you're telling me I know, that Wisdom Cricket Monthly comes out <laughs> once a month. Yes, and I'm telling you that Free Sports is indeed free. Yeah, but it just means that... I think it's something like 70 days of international cricket over the next couple of years will be accessible uh, from Zimbabwe and Afghanistan. And that's a great investment in their product as well. I mean, remember that Zimbabwean cricket has battled to command attention. They're not in the World Test Championship, so they're not getting those consistent fixtures, nor are Afghanistan, although Afghanistan um, have a slightly different trajectory they're on at the moment. They've been going fantastically well in the last 10 years, as opposed to Zimbabwe. But still, this is something that's going to help elevate the status. It'll pour some money into the coffers of those two boards that desperately need it. And I had a conversation with Richard Sweeney, uh, the Chief Executive of Free Sports, about this investment and where they're thinking long-term about cricket on their network. My goal is, right, you know, we've got the rights, we've got consistent cricket. There's another, there's, you know, there's a stage of production and quality on that side. And then there's the other option of that there is still a lot of other rights that are still in the market. There's there's other organisations, other countries that are selling their rights at the moment. And, you know, we're looking at those as well. So it's not just these countries that we're looking at and that are hoping to grow these to grow this portfolio of of cricket rights. But we're in discussions with other organisations. Um, you know, I, I can I can say it, it won't be the England matches, right? So you know, you can put them, you can park them, and um, that's not going to happen. But you know, we're definitely interested. I mean, I mean, the goal for us, you know, my goal is to get. I think we have 80 days this year so far on free sports of cricket. If I can get that up to about 160 days, um, you know, I'll be quite happy. I mean, that is, that's the real goal that I have, you know. Um, I think there is a gap in the market that has not been covered, especially in the free-to-air free uh, side, that I'm not saying there's going to be always 
tens of thousands of uh, people watching it every single day. <laughs> but, you know, if we can get that consistency, there's some really good games in these packages as well. Remember, they're going to be playing against some of the top teams as well. So, you know, there is that interest and that's what we have to do. So there's other, yes, definitely I'm looking at other rights. You know, for me, this is the start of a journey for us. We've been sort of in and out of buying rights for cricket for the last five or six years. They've been one-offs and then we disappear for six or seven months. Now we know what we're going to do. And now it's trying to understand how we can build more. I mean, some of them clash with other rights, as you say. We're up against India and uh, England, which will be, you know, it is a bit of a clash. But I, I just really believe that there's a market there that people have sort of forgotten about. I think there's a real interest really starting again um, about cricket. And, um, you know, it's like nearly like a rebirth. There, there's sort of a change of how people view cricket. I think they nearly gave up on it because they could never really watch it anywhere. And 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 hopefully that, you know, and especially I think it's great, you know, Channel 4 will come in and, and picked up some cricket because it creates a wider audience. People start, you know, watching it again, start enjoying it, finding out what they've missed. And then people like ourselves, hopefully on the back of that, that they come in and say, well, by the way, actually I can go and watch a bit of cricket on free sports. And and that's that's the importance. That's what we're looking at. That's Richard Sweeney of Free Sports. Um, there's some pretty tasty stuff in the fixtures that they've got. They've got a test series against Pakistan for Zimbabwe. Um, they've got the Zimbabwe-Afghanistan test that's happening next year as well, a couple of tests against Bangladesh, a test against Ireland. They've actually got several tests against one another coming up and then Afghanistan have got um, that test match against Australia, do they not, that's coming up in 2022? Yeah, yeah. So that, that's, that's uh, I mean, that's not in their list of fixtures here that we got in the press release yesterday, but it is an Afghanistan test match in 2022, so I assume that will be the case. There's one-day internationals, Against Australia for Afghanistan, they've got ODIs against Pakistan. India are actually playing one day as in Zimbabwe in August this year too. So, yeah, there'll be plenty of eyeballs being, as Richard said, that it's all about trying to you know generate as much interest as they can while they have these rights. And yeah, there's some pretty tasty stuff there, as you say. So yeah, well played to them for um, for taking up this opportunity. And um, yeah, looking forward to watching plenty of cricket from the Afghanistan and Zimbabwean national teams over the next few years. The Sheffield Shield, uh, a couple of draws, but a couple of pretty interesting draws, um, notably in a scorecard sense. Western Australia hanging on by one wicket, 148 for nine in the fourth innings against South Australia, who were trying and trying and trying. Uh, Liam O'Connor facing 23 balls from number 11 to hang on. And I was watching the last sort of half hour of that game and, you know, the way the field kept creeping in a bit closer and a bit closer. And they brought a man off from the leg side to a sort of second gully for the last delivery of the match. And the ball ended up being edged to point to just square between. They had a silly point in and they had this second gully in and it got edged between the two of them and landed safely. So South Australia couldn't quite get over the line. But um, interesting too for Cameron Bancroft getting back on the, the ton-making list and Cameron Green made a big 100 as well for WA. Yeah, great game this. I love a three-declaration uh, first-class game. So South Australia go big, as you say. And Travis Head makes his highest score in first-class cricket, 2-2-3 from just 245 balls. So a fantastic response, really. Um, now back in, in, in shield ranks uh, after being dropped from the test team earlier in the summer. Harry Hunt, his second century for South Australia um, this year, the young opening batsman. Cameron Green, you already mentioned, a century there after a double ton in a grade game and another century today, which we'll come to in a sec, playing uh, white ball cricket for WA. Alex Carey, who helped sort of save South Australia in the second innings, really. WA were making a real comeback after 
you know, taking a 100-run deficit into the second innings or the, the third innings of the, of the match, I should say. Um, they had SA 4 for 61 and in walks Alex Carey and steadies the ship and makes an unbeaten 82. Uh, and then, yeah, brilliant um, final hour or so. I think they needed to bat for four and a half overs or something like that to um, to get to safety after losing their ninth wicket. And, and Liam O'Connor, after taking three wickets uh, with the ball, uh, three for 53 in SA second innings, was able to hold on and, uh, and get them to safe harbour. So it works out to be that South Australia have only actually won 11 of their last 50 Shield games. I mean, heading in the right direction, fantastic performance. You know, if they finished the job there after making 500 in the first dig uh, and, uh, and um, you know, if they had a bowled out WA, you'd say it's a famous victory at the Wacker, but instead they um, mm. fall agonisingly short of their first uh, victory of uh, 2020-21. Jeff, the other game was also a draw. New South Wales-Victoria at Bankstown. It was meant to be Victoria's home game, but they moved it up to Sydney on COVID grounds, I believe. Anyway, we have to be used to this uh, agile um, scheduling uh, through the pandemic. And it was a, a draw where Victoria held on, but New South Wales, uh, some fantastic individual performances. Yeah, Victoria struggling, really. Um, we've been talking about Bannerman stuff. Matthew Short was sort of getting into the conversation about half of the runs in Victoria's first uh, first innings, so 94 out of 190. Harry Conway, after that um, very entertaining performance in the the India Tour match where he, he got up to all kinds of antics on the SCG. It's um, some of the strangest cricket I've ever seen from, from Harry Conway, but he picked up six for 39 in that first innings. New South Wales got a le- big lead. Moses made 141. They got up to 364. James Pattinson, four wickets. And, and then it was, yeah, same sort of thing up to Victoria to hang on. And they did so via Peter Hanscom, who hasn't made 100 in a couple of seasons. You know, he's, he's grown the hair long. He's got a different look. He's captaining the Victorian side. And he made that 100, 124, batted 327 deliveries out there and just made sure that they hung on long enough. They were 270 for four by the time... The game was called off and Nathan Lyon picked up a couple of wickets in that, um, well, third innings of the match, but could have been the last innings of the match, but wasn't able to do more on a what was a pretty docile surface yeah. at Bankstown. I think I think New South Wales thought if they'd been playing at the SCG, they would have um, romped that in, but the track wasn't giving them a lot. Great news for Peter Hanscom. You mentioned that sort of gap he's had between centuries, but I suppose just where he sits, I, I spoke to him uh, during one of the lockdowns last year for The Guardian and just interesting to kind of get his perspective on the roller coaster ride that's been his international career starting so well then getting an opportunity in the one day team doing well there as well but within a couple of years gets dropped at the start of an ashes series which is a fairly chastening experience gets back in south africa for that one test match at johannesburg after the ball tampering um, saga uh, and then dropped again and then back in the white ball team doesn't make the world cup after making his breakthrough century in mahali just before the world cup and you kind of get to the start of 2020 when the pandemic hits and he's been on this treadmill for like four years nonstop and he had a chance to just to take stock and, and between times Middlesex had said to him that they weren't going to bring him out to be captain in 2020 per the previous arrangement. They were going to defer his contract to 2021-2022. So he'll be captaining that club at county level for the next two seasons. It's a good opportunity for him. He's, I think he's 29 years of age. He might be 30 now. But, yep. you know, he, he sort of still has time on his side, I reckon it's fair to say, especially given he'll be playing so much red ball cricket in England where, you know, Australia will be uh, the year after next. So, yeah, I think that as a mid-career point, 
a lot's happened so far and being able to bat for an entire day. What stood out to me watching quite a bit of this on the stream was how well he hooked the New South Wales pace, but not least Pat Cummins. I mean, you know, no matter how docile the, surf- the surface might be, if Cummins is bowling mm. between your armpit and your helmet and how accurate Cummins can be, that's a daunting prospect. But he hooked him repeatedly and well. So that's a good sign for him from a technical perspective uh, and just for his confidence, as I mentioned before. So, And as for Moses Henriquez, uh, his sixth century in the last two years, I mean, Australia's kind of been fishing around for a number five for a while he was in that touring squad for South Africa I don't know whether he would have played or not but I suppose the fact that that hasn't gone ahead gives him a chance to to bolster his credentials at first class level they're thinking about him it feels that way doesn't it they're thinking about him he he was in that he, um, T20 squad as well. He was playing in those games, and there's a definite sense, I reckon, from from selectors and and the coach at the moment that he's m- much more strongly in the mix than you might have thought. So yeah, yeah. It's an interesting one, and and there's also that WA South Australia one day that we mentioned off the top. Sean Marsh making a hundred there. It's just finished and turned into an absolute belter in the end. So Cameron Green made a big hundred as well in the first innings. And then in the chase, chasing 370 to win South Australia, Travis Heads made 142 from 86 balls. Blimey. At one point they were one point they were one for a 280 with 12 overs to go oh, and absolutely it. in the box seat. And then he managed to get run out by Cameron Green. Oh. So um, 142 at a strike rate of 165, absolutely flogging them. And from there, um, the the wickets fell more quickly than they should have. They got bowled out in the last over and they were, what, 15, 14 runs short. So um, actually probably should have won that game as yeah, well. Yeah, they should have. Interesting, that, yeah, seeing Head making runs across the formats. I mean, let's remember that Travis Head first got his opportunity for Australia as a white ball player. It was out of the big bash, picked in the one-day team in 2016 and did pretty well, really. He was an opening... I mean, he, he you go back mm. to the Champions Trophy of 2017 and there he was. I think he was batting number four in that in that series. So, yeah, I, I, I don't imagine he's too far away from being considered as a 50-over cricketer again and it won't hurt that he's... Smashed 142 from 86 rocks and hit six sixes along the way. That's a that's a fine effort at number three, uh, backing up his two two three at a decent clip in the Shield game. So what's that? He's made one two three. He's made five centuries this season across the formats now, something like that. So even though he's lost his spot in the Test team, he's for SA at least mm. having a very good summer. Yeah, he had that run opening in the one day team as well. Yeah, that's right. Did all right there too. But the um, the queue to open is is a lot longer than the queue for the middle order. So that's where the domestic stuff is at. And more broadly, we have been asking our listeners to send in Bannerman adjacent performances. So this is innings, batting innings, in which a player in a completed innings, that is to say everyone who could be dismissed has been dismissed, uh, a player who has an extremely high percentage of the team's runs. We've had some caucus uh, and we've got another very good candidate on today's show. Yeah, uh, I like that we're doing this at the end of the show each week too. It's, uh, as I said, I think um, when we recorded uh, in Hawthorne this time last week, it's a nice little nice little, uh, nice little, nugget for those of you who stuck around to the end and love the Bannerman stuff. So Mark Dwyer, who we talked about on Storytime on Saturday, who brought to my attention uh, the performance of Simon Hill. To recap, Simon Hill back in 2016 played an innings for Camberwell Magpies um, in the first 11 against Footscray where he scored... 79.85% of the runs, so 137 not out out of an all-out 172 effort, a match-winning one at that. 
So Mark uh, has another one to offer as well. Mark, of course, being the man that I caught on the boundary to dismiss when Dermot Burton was bowling in the MCC game a couple of weeks ago, I should I should add. Uh, <laughs> Mark uh, said that after playing the... Um, the audio from Storytime to some friends from Campbell Magpies, they gave him a new candidate. Now, and this is another player from Wangaratta, which is where Mark hails from. This is a game that was played in 2006, an under-16s game between the Wangaratta Magpies and the Karawa Cricket Club. So under-16s game in 2006. Mm-hmm. The Magpies... Okay. So, so if, I can, if I can just be clear on this, so... Mark sent you a thing about Simon and then Mark played the thing about Simon to someone else who also gave Mark this thing. Yes. Is this what we're doing? Yes, that's right. Maybe okay, I missed good. a step along the way, but you've, right. you've got it right there. And there's also... No, no, I'm just... just Making sure I'm clear. That's fine. That's fine. So this under-16s game, uh, the Wangaratta Magpies batted first and they were all out for 126. That's a very Bannerman total. You know, when, when we talk Bannermans, mm. you want to see your team skittled out for about... That, yeah. But what you're not conditioned to seeing when a team's bowled out for 126 is the opening batsman getting 108 of them. Christopher Thewlis made 108. The rest of the team, 2 0 0 1 0 2 0 0 0. Extras 13. All out 126. He gets 108. That is 85.71%. And, Jeff, that overtakes... The eighty-three point four three percent that we registered the other week for the great Glenn Turner for Worcestershire back in the seventies—that's our clubhouse leader, Christopher Thewlis, uh, in an under-16s game in two thousand and six for the Wangaratta Magpies. He might be the—he might be the best bannerman. He is the best bannerman we've seen so far. That is the leader. Um, We've—I mean—we heard rumour of an innings in which a player made all of the runs and everyone else made naught. But I think that involved a number of extras, so it might have. It was probably a lower percentage. Yeah, yeah. As far as percentages that we've been able to calculate, eighty-five point seven one is it. That's that's the new mark. Which isn't to say that um, anything that you send in has to be that, you know. But if it could, <laughs> we would be very interested to hear about it. Um, we're interested to hear about other ones as well. But so the so the note here says the innings lasted thirty-two point two overs, which means he made a hundred and eight. In what's that? One hundred and one hundred and ninety odd balls. Um, yeah, so better than a run ball in total. He managed. He managed to score one hundred and eight from his proportion of them. Yeah, fantastic. And the other um, postscript to this, which I quite enjoyed, is that uh, Carrower um, had a bloke take five for none off three overs. Five for none from three overs. And it just happens to be um, two-time Hawthorne Premiership player, Taylor, the Dr. A, who uh, played in the 2014 and 2015 Premierships for Hawthorne. And, of course, he was best on ground in the 2015 preliminary final, which I suppose most Hawthorne supporters remember him for. His goal to, to seal the deal in the last term at Subiaco. I was in a cafe at Heathrow flying back to Melbourne for the grand final on the assumption that we'd make it through. Fairly ballsy on my part. That's very Hawthorne supporter areas, that. But, you know, watching the prelim from a cafe at Heathrow is, is a fairly stressful experience. And I reckon when when Duray kicks his brilliant snapped goal from about 40 metres out um, uh, to the left of screen uh, at the old Subiaco, I was sobbing into my cup of coffee knowing that I was going back home to watch <laughs> Hawthorne play in another grand final and another premiership, so back-to-back premiership start. But he wasn't the star that day because he didn't make 85 
0.71% of the runs. Gorgeous stuff. Uh, thank you very much, Mark, for your work on the Bannerman Hunt. And there's there's maybe another number as well that's been thrown up. So Ben Schneider has got in touch after we talked on Storytime about the test bowling career of Rob Quiney, um, who, if you haven't listened to the show on the weekend, you should. If you just want to hit find the Quiney bit, you can go towards the end. It's fine. We don't mind. Um, but it was about the number of deliveries he sent down versus the number of deliveries he faced. And Ben Schneider would like to know if this is the highest in this new category. Uh, which specialist batsman, asks Ben, has the highest ratio of balls bowled to balls faced in test cricket? Because many specialist batsmen have bowled a couple of overs here or mm, there. Mm. You know, some of them, bowled, probably Sachin Tendulkar, for instance, bowled quite a lot. If he were just a bowler, that would be a fair amount of bowling work. But he did a lot more batting than that, so his quotient would be low. Rob Quiney's... Quiney quotient, as Ben is calling it, is 6.82, which is to say he bowled 6.82 deliveries for every one that he faced in Test cricket, which would be very hard to top but not impossible. Um, This is the kind of thing that would take a long time to work out. And so if somebody wants to download the, I don't know, 30-odd thousand international innings that might be required or international players who might be required to to try to work out this number and spreadsheet them, you're very welcome to do so. I'll tell you what, there, there won't be many bowlers with a higher quiny quotient than, than 6.82, I reckon. My, just thinking about it like back of a post-it note, like the, you'd have mm. to bowl a lot of overs and be used very infrequently, certainly at test level, because bowlers are batting like I mean it's different in T20 mm. and 50 over cricket where often you have a lot of DMBs but most of the time in test cricket as a bowler you still got to bat a couple of times or at least once in a match so yeah I reckon that mm. even if you include bowlers in this Quiney's going to be right towards the top I look forward to finding out yeah right okay so yeah I mean in order to have a high quotient you'd need to be a a Murali style bowler who did a shitload of the overs with the ball um, and didn't face a lot. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I see so. where you're going. I mean, with maybe, that. maybe I'm, if you're I'm, a spinner, you get it. a lot of overs. Yeah, maybe I'm underplaying it. Maybe I haven't quite got this right, but still, it's 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 something to I go think, with. I think what it's saying, I think what it's saying is that you would have to bowl six overs for every over that you faced. Oh, you'd, in that case, to, maybe. as a bowler. You, Right. Okay. I have. Um. Sorry. I haven't quite got that right in my head. In that case, that wouldn't be too hard to overtake. Like, let's say Nathan Lyon. Would Nathan Lyon bowl six mm. overs for every one over he batted? I mean, yes, he would. Yeah. Yes. So maybe Probably. we do need the qualifier of specialist batsman, with which Quiney mm. will sit at, atop the list. But there might be a decent yeah. second or third. But there might be. You know, you never know who might be up there. There'll be others. There'll be players with short careers where the the batting didn't go so well, and and then they were called upon with the ball unexpectedly. Yep. Um, but it would be interesting to see which specialist bowlers were above that. You know, who's who who did better with the bat. Anyway, there, there's food for thought down there, down the order. Get in touch if you've got something to add to that. And that aside, I think it brings us to the end of the show today. This has been The Final Word. It's a podcast on the Bad Producer Podcast Network. They have many other shows about many other things. If you like other things, we do too. Go and check them out. It's edited by David Collins. It is supported by Seabus Superannuation. And today, Zolio, the most powerful satellite communications device in the cosmos. It is also and fundamentally and most importantly supported by everyone on Patreon who uh, make the show happen. It would not exist without you all. So thank you very much. And if you're listening right to the end of the show, thank you even more because I don't know who does, but it's nice to think that we have a little bit of company 
as the closing music is about to play. It's been the final word. Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins. We'll have the Daily Show from the India-England Test Series coming on Thursday morning Australia time and or Friday morning Australia time. One of them. You'll work it out when the Test match starts. And we'll have Story Time, our history show, on the weekend. See you then. So you know what I meant here. I had to go.